March 12, 2015. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Poke Runyon. And tonight we have as our honored guest, Merrick Rees Hamer, a leading Masonic ritualist and Masonic lecturer in California, a master storyteller, a talented musician, and a leader in the Golden Dawn Rosicrucian magical tradition. Merrick is also a classical actor, having portrayed the Master Philos and his evil counterpart, Magister Abaddon, in the Church of the Hermetic Sciences production of Beyond Lemuria, filmed at Mount Shasta in 2006, and recently re-released in a second edition. Merrick is also a leading officer in the Church of the Hermetic Sciences and its magical fraternal order, the OTA. Merrick will give us a history of his creative and esoteric interests and accomplishments. So if you would like to spend an hour or so uh, with a modern master of traditional magic and the arts related to it, music, drama, and poetic expression, then join us and be inspired. Now, uh, this is this is really going to be a treat because Mary Kamer is uh, one of the uh, one of the uh, key members of our uh, of our Hermetic team, and uh, and he is uh, a phenomenal phenomenal uh, ritualist and 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 as I said, storyteller. Uh, uh, Merrick has a unique talent. And we'll try to get him to talk a little more about this. Um, You've all heard of of the photographic memory. Well, Merrick doesn't have exactly a photographic memory. Merrick has what you might call an audiographic memory. If you give him a a story or uh, or even a a novelette, which in the case of Prince of Cotton, the Magic Bow, uh, he did, uh, he will read it aloud to himself, and then after that, he has it. And he can and he can go ahead and read it aloud without uh, reference to the text. And this is remarkable. And this, of course, is, has aided him in, in, uh, in his Masonic ritual work and, uh, and also in his professional storytelling because Mary, as he will discuss tonight and tell us about uh, about his career as a as a storyteller uh, in the Los Angeles County Library System, and uh, he he is marvelously talented in this respect. Uh, but um, this this photographic memory is something that uh, I'm sure every actor and every ritualist would uh, would certainly love to have if if we if we, if we could possibly have it but America has this unique talent and so um and uh, uh we're waiting for America to call in and he should be calling in momentarily is she on yet no uh so um he should be calling in pretty soon uh America was for for years the uh, what you might call the anchor man for for Scottish Rite in Los Angeles. He uh, he knew all the key roles for all of the major uh, the major degrees, and of course uh, he he knows uh, uh, he knows by heart. He knows the uh, those those lectures uh, in, in the Golden Dawn, the, the 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 marvelous lectures that the Hierophant gives, and and he can uh, stand up and and, and give those lectures. 
uh, uh, with his uh, with his unique talent. Uh, and this is this is really a wonderful wonderful thing to experience. And uh, um, we're uh, and uh, uh, I, I think that that he is 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 a terrific asset. And uh, and uh, and of course he's also uh, been uh, been a Masonic Lodge Master many times and and uh, and he's uh, he is the vice president of the pre- of the Church of the Hermetic Sciences at the present time and uh, and he, he, just one of these one of these remarkable remarkable uh, 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 people in the magical community and in the Masonic community. And uh, I'm, uh, you know, kind of concerned. Uh, is he is he calling in yet? Uh, Merrick, are you there? I am on the phone, Pope. Oh, good, good, good. I'm, I'm just about to wonder whether whether you. Well, uh, yeah, well, good, great. Well, I think I have given you uh, quite an introduction. In fact, what I've been talking about, you you haven't you've been good, and you haven't been listening listening. Well, to, I've to been me, away but, from the uh, the radio or the computer, so yeah, right. I, I really don't know yeah, what so you, you said. Get, so you don't get the feedback loop. I was telling uh, the our listeners about your your audiographic memory. This this. Uh, Marvelous talent that you have that you can read something aloud and then and then and then you can recite it without looking at the text and 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 I've been bragging on on that and how how wonderful that is and uh the night that I remember the night that you did uh, Prince of Cop and the Magic Bow virtually the whole text of the in, in the novel up uh, no, uh, you know a short novel length story. And and performed it out there at the campfire after seasonal at uh, in, up there in the uh, Angeles National Forest, and that was a wonderful experience. Would you uh, tell us uh, uh, how you got started and a little bit about you know a little bit about your childhood and what what fascinated you and how you were your upbringing and and how it uh, how it uh, sent you uh, put you in the direction that you were uh, that you ended up going? Uh, you know, kind of tell us how you got started. Well, I, I guess if you're going back to childhood, I would have to describe my childhood as uh, somewhat uh, separated from the uh, usual crowd. I lived in um, in uh, a hilly area uh, in in a neighborhood where there were really no peers my age, and so consequently, I spent a lot of time by myself. It was a it was a natural area where there are a lot of hills and and uh, wild animals and beautiful things to see, birds and deer and all these wonderful things, and I I think that kind of environment and one that was not interrupted by by, by peers who would have been living in the neighborhood I, I think it sort of uh, gave me an introspective. Nature developed an introspective nature. I've always looked kind of deeply into things, um, and in, in, in sort of a spiritual way. And it, it made me a little different from from other kids my age. I always got along with people. I'm not saying I was, um, you know, a, a recluse or anything. But in fact, I had a lot of good friends and and um, never had any difficulty, you know, socializing with with people. But I spent a lot of time by myself, and uh, I think the benefit is is that 
it gave me uh, an introspective nature, not not an introverted nature, but more of an introspective one. And that's how I would say it it started. Uh, you know, I think it started me on a kind of a spiritual, uh, gave me a spiritual disposition. But it, it, you got you, you got fascinated with uh, mythology and fairy tales and everything when you were when you were young, uh, though, right? Oh yeah. Well, let me tell you how that started. And now I had some musical training starting at age nine. Uh, my parents, who themselves uh, had a, a musical and, and artistic background, my father's deceased now. My mother's still alive. Um, they they gave me piano lessons at age nine. And, um, uh, you know, I certainly uh, had a uh, strong inclination for music, and it was, uh, I think it was a, a good investment to uh, to provide me with piano lessons. Well, where I'm going with that is um, my interest in music eventually um, led to other instruments and other musical studies, including the the oboe. And I started that around the age uh, that one goes to uh, middle school, around seventh grade, I believe. And um, where I'm going with the oboe, it, it took me up north when I was traveling with my family to uh, visit relatives during the holidays. And there was always this little um, airport attraction on Highway 80, it was called Nutree, Nutree, California. Uh, just kind of a tourist attraction. And there was always one man there. His name was Ted Goodfellow. And he was an oboist with the uh, San Jose, uh, excuse me, the Santa Rosa Orchestra. Uh, but at the particular um, uh, resort there, the airport resort, uh, he would dress as the Pied Piper of Hamelin and um, entertain the children that were there at the uh, resort. And he would do this with two penny whistles. Uh, he designed his own penny whistles and uh, played them both simultaneously and, and entertain the children. He would uh, get them onto the little train that went around the, the little park, the resort. And uh, uh, somehow that fascinated me very much. And I bought two of his pipes and uh, went home and practiced a bit on them. And uh, then I would go there every year because my family would travel north every year around the holidays. And I would drop in and, and lo and behold, Ted Goodfellow was there with his pipes. And he, he was rather thrilled when I pulled out my own two pipes and we, we got into a duet. So um, anyway, that that idea uh, eventually manifested in um, in um, a portrayal of literature. I, I had been working in a uh, public library uh, setting and uh, was regularly um, entertaining kids with literature. And I took that uh, idea with the uh, Pied Piper and the two pipes and and developed a show for kids in which I would dress as the Pied Piper and uh, lead them on, uh, I would tell the story, of course, and subsequently lead uh, maybe 100, sometimes 200 children um, through a library setting, uh, weaving in and out of the bookcases, in sort of a booster-fedonic motion, 
singing and playing the pipes. And uh, you can imagine the, the sight when you had that many children following a pipe piper uh, oh, reading yeah. out of the bookcases. It was quite a sight. And uh, it, it's, you know, it's a, it's a challenge. Uh, it, it went over well, and I was invited to do it several other places. And even I took it to shopping malls where, where it was much more difficult because you would have to kind of um, um, build up the courage to uh, dress very eccentrically as a pipe piper in the tights and the cape and all that and play the pipes and, and hoping that the children would uh, gather around. And, uh, and I never failed <laughs> to make it happen. So um, I realized I had a potential there. Eventually, I developed other um, children's programs based on uh, juvenile literature. Um, one of the larger ones was um, Where the Wild Things Are, um, Maurice Sendak's story. And uh, that one I took to uh, the L.A. Zoo and some other places. Uh, it was a big, big show. I would actually dress in a wolf suit to represent Max, the, the little child that would... Uh, uh, imagine himself traveling to the land of the wild things. Um, I also, um, with the help of my parents, who were very artistic, um, developed these large uh, life-size puppets and and set them up on this big rig um, with uh, up and down an up and down crank, similar to the way uh, merry-go-round merry horses go up and down. I would have to weld these pipes together and, and make two of them go up while one goes down. These animals uh, would open their mouths and spin their eyes around and um, open their teeth and gnash, and it was all set to a soundtrack with uh, deep uh, roars and so forth. And uh, it was a, quite a spectacle. Oh, this, That's this really a, sounds, a couple of examples. Sounds, sounds fascinating, and, and uh, it... it it uh, naturally, I'm sure we're all reminded of of, uh, of the uh, the uh, uh, the Renaissance Fair uh, environment where where uh, these these that these sort of uh, uh, you know these sort of late medieval uh, kind of Punch and Judy sort of uh, uh, things are are, are 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 a regular feature and. And I, I just I think this is fascinating, but this is very romantic too. And and uh, now this, uh, do you think that this is what eventually led you uh, led you to uh, to the Golden Dawn when you uh, and, and uh, uh, if, you know from from making these fairy tales come alive and and uh, you you uh, you continued on into uh, into the the uh, Victorian magical tradition? Do you think that's uh, would you tell us about that? Well, it, it certainly uh, developed um, a sense of um, um, of realized power. You know, uh, by power I mean the ability to to realize uh, the talent that one has in himself. And rather than let it sit dormantly, it would uh, you know one would uh, discover it and then put it to work and. I found that the juvenile audiences were very, uh, very excellent um, settings to to realize this and and, and test it and and uh, you know because um, you know children are not um, they, they are their instinct is to say what's on their mind you know and if they don't if they don't like something they'll they'll let you know and if they do like something they'll also let you know 
And so uh, I developed a strong sense of confidence um, due, because of that. And that that strength is something that is uh, transferable to to more serious things that we do, adults, and uh, particularly those that are involved in in the, in the spiritual uh, metaphysical quest. Because as you know, energy and dynamics is a very important component of of our work. Well, yes, and of course, uh, uh, the Golden Dawn incorporates a great deal of this. Uh, of this, uh, well, you might say the. Uh, aspect of the fairy tradition uh, with the elementals and and uh, and uh, you know the uh, uh, well of course William Butler Yeats was uh, was very much involved in it and along with several other uh, literati British literati and uh, uh, and it, of course this all of this is is what we would call very very much uh, part of the Romantic movement. And uh, which uh, magic is certainly a uh, an outgrowth of that, and uh, and uh, you also uh, we we mentioned of course in in, in uh, the beginning of your career in in Freemasonry, and and uh, uh, did you start off in Demolay and 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 uh, and then go from there into Masonry? Uh, and yes, was that I. That is the that is the order. I, I at age sixteen I uh, entered the order of de Molay, uh at the encouragement of a friend, high school friend, and um, I entered into de Molay in the uh, in the Culver City area of California. That's roughly just outside of Los Angeles, and uh, found it a very uh, very uh, exciting exciting experience. Uh, Demolay, uh, for those listeners who may not be familiar with it, is a youth order for basically for teenage boys, um, and it's based on Templar Templar uh, history, uh, particularly the final uh, days of Jacques Bernard Demolay, uh, who was the last Grandmaster of the uh, of the Knights Templar, and of course, the the idea of the Templars in back in the Middle Ages was to convey pilgrims to the Holy Lands, uh, which would have been a very difficult uh, and dangerous uh, uh, travel for Europeans, and and so they they needed the protection of the Templars. Uh, the Templars, of course, were very good at what they did, and eventually people began to trust entrust their wealth and property to, for protection. And this became a point of envy to the king of France, Philippe le Bel, and um, and he he uh, coveted what uh, what the Templars were protecting, and orchestrated some means to to uh, defeat the Templars, arrest them, uh, and uh, put them in prison, and eventually put Jacques de Molay to death. Well, this is, of course, uh, the idea for young teenagers is to um, instill in them the idea of loyalty and perseverance, even at the cost of one's of life. Uh, we we hope we never have to face such trials, of course. But it does it does uh, really reinforce the concept of loyalty, dignity, the dignity of human nature, and that's quite a profound lesson for for young men. I was involved with it. 
it was a natural step for me at age 21 to become a Freemason. And it, at that time, 21 was the age at which one could enter the craft of Freemasonry. I did so in the Culver City area and uh, became very active in my Masonic Lodge and eventually served as its master, several times actually, as its master. And also you received the Hiram Award and, and uh, uh, the... Uh uh, our listeners should be aware that the Hiram Award is one of the highest awards that you can personally receive in Masonry, and it and it is given to those who serve uh, who serve uh, unselfishly and and uh, and uh, and without uh, without any uh, you know um, expectation of, of reward. And and so those those who receive the Hiram Award are among the the uh, the the elite of Masons uh, in that respect. And you certainly that is certainly uh, true in California, where that that award um, was um, was uh, originated. Uh, it may have similar um, recognitions may uh, be entitled differently from state to state, but in California we do uh, denominate it uh, the Hiram Award. Yes. And of course, you are uh, in, in the Scottish Rite, uh, which is which is a, a higher uh, degrees above the Blue Lodge, uh, uh, all the way up to the the uh, the thirty third uh, top degree, which of course is is in a sense kind of honorary. Uh, and you are a thirty third degree uh, member of Scottish Rite, and uh, and uh, and as I mentioned uh, before, you came on. Uh, you uh, for uh, many years you were the anchor man of, uh, of in the Los Angeles Scottish Rite, uh, because you were the you uh, knew all of the major lectures for the, all the major degrees, uh, the main the main lectures, and you you knew them by heart. And uh, this is this is uh, uh, one of the you know advantages of this uh, audiographic memory uh, talent that you have uh, is, is, am I saying that correctly would you call it an audiographic memory well or? I I do people have asked me a lot of times how I memorize large uh, quantities of text and uh, they often say you must have a, f- a photographic uh, memory and I, I really don't think of it in terms of a photograph because I don't see uh, the image of a text in front of me while I'm, you know, for the benefit of uh, rendering something by memory. Um, but I do retain what I hear, and I, I think the musical training must have had something to do with that. I, I, I'm not an analyst and that sort of thing, but I'm just making that uh, that guess that... Uh, you know the, the the musical training, and and furthermore, in the remote area where I lived, and the ability to concentrate and focus without a lot of interruptions, uh, developed, I think, a capacity for retention. And I, I think it's more based on the uh, the sound. I hear a sound, and I remember it, and I can then repeat it. As That's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful gift, and and a wonderful talent which you use, which you use uh, very, very well. I know uh, uh, our, our old friend Manley Hall, who's no longer with us. 
he had an actual photographic memory, and you could watch him when he was giving a lecture. You could watch his eyes on an invisible teleprompter uh, uh, floating above his head. And you I could watch his that. eyes go. Yeah. I had the pleasure of, uh, of witnessing Manley Hall lecture several times at the uh, Philosophical Research uh, society there in uh, in Los Angeles and and yes uh, I, I I saw exactly what you're describing. Yeah, and and, and so, so I want to make uh, I want to differentiate between the audiographic memory that you that you have your talent and Manley Hall's because uh, uh, and of course we both knew Manley Hall and and uh, and uh, and you know. Uh, you are, in a way, uh, part of this, part of the uh, of the old uh, druidic tradition, and and uh, in the in the Islamic world, they they have uh, they have people whom they call hafiz, and and a hafiz is one who can recite the whole the entire Quran from memory, and uh, uh, of course we. We wonder sometimes uh, uh, if these Hafiz can recite the entire Quran from memory. Uh, we would hope that they would remember the, <laughs> the parts of it, the parts of it that are that are that are peaceful, you know, the, the, and 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 loving, and uh, which the Prophet did, uh, peace be upon him, did did uh, pronounce. We would hope they would, uh, but in in masonry. Uh, um, the uh, the teachings are in the ritual. It's just like the druids, and, the, and of course the, the the old druids had no, had no no written literature at all. It was all in the minds of their of their uh, their bards, and and you certainly are are one of the in that tradition. And I and I, I and it's a it's a joy to. Uh, it's a joy to be in the presence of your art. I can, I can, I can say that. Like I was mentioning, I think before you uh, came on, about the uh, the night at, uh, around the campfire out at uh, in the national forest uh, when you did uh, Prince of Cotton, the Magic Bow, our our Canaanite, our reconstruction of that of that ancient Canaanite myth. And did it entirely from memory, and and standing around the campfire, delivering that was was uh, it was really really an experience. Uh, you want to uh, let, uh, talk about uh, when you first uh, came in contact with me, and how you became involved with CHSOTA, and uh, if you well, can think certainly. back. Yeah. yeah, well, that that takes us back to the uh, days of the Los Angeles Scottish Rite. Um, which you may recall, because um, um, you know that is really the first setting in which we had uh, been acquainted with each other is, is on a Scottish Rite stage, mm-hmm. and uh, we were both uh, assigned to the same degree, and um, and um, although we didn't um, know each other all that well at the time, uh, it was really where it began. So our our introduction of each other was was Masonic. Um, eventually, I of course became acquainted with uh, you know your your uh, other activities outside of Freemasonry, particularly uh, your magical activities uh, as it's expressed in the uh, the Church of the Hermetic Sciences and and the uh, 
and the O or the Ordo Templi Astarte. And uh, I became uh, exposed to that through some of my um, my pursuits in the uh, Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Uh, naturally, when one um, enters into a, a, a circle of, um, of uh, like-minded people, um, you know, these communities, these magical communities, um, uh, sometimes... Um, Exchange uh, friendship, and and that's how I happened to learn about your involvement in in your magical community. I took an interest oh. in it. Um, you uh, you I guess you had seen me perform at the Scottish Rite, and and asked if I would consider uh, doing something similar on behalf of the uh, the church. I was not a member of, the, of your church at the time, but you asked if I would I guess as sort of a guest. Uh, Participant um, do something similar, and indeed it was uh, a chut and the uh, the magical bow. And you know, there yeah. I took the same techniques. Um, you know, I I don't say read. I don't necessarily read the text and memorize what I see. I take it privately to myself and I read it through aloud to myself, and I I start listening to the sounds of the lines, and and they have to. Each line has life to it, and you've got to identify the life and and um, express it as though it's a living organism. And uh, every line is really different because every line reflects a different mode, a uh, different mood, and a different uh, uh, psychic moment. And, All right. And and uh, you know I I know that uh, a cod and a magical bow it involves several characters. Each one, each character has a has an identity and a personality, and also a, a, a voice of his or her own. and And I try to find the the voice that matches the character. And these supports are actually what reinforce the memorization. Yeah, the, 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 you 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 have perfected the art of the storyteller, and uh, this brings us to. Uh, to something else that we share, and that, and that is this Golden Dawn uh, background and tradition. Uh, as as you know, I, I uh, Rigardi was a personal friend of mine, and and uh, and uh, uh, and you, uh, we were both uh, also closely associated with proteges of his, uh, and in my case, David Kennedy, uh, uh, and who. Uh, uh, who he and I and and uh, and uh, uh, Jeffrey James started a, a little Golden Dawn provisional temple just lower order uh, uh, called Isis Osiris back uh, back in 1980. Uh, and, uh, uh, and very true. And in, in my case, uh, I was associated with Chris Minostre. And she was a protege also of Regardi's, and uh, and uh, yeah. So you want to tell us a little bit about that uh, background uh, with uh, with uh, Chris Minastre and Chick Cicero and and the rest of them, and and uh, uh, how, how you got started in that? Well, at the time, I that goes back about twenty three years, roughly speaking, and. Um, and uh, I had uh, become acquainted with the Golden Dawn, did a little bit of inquiry, and uh, somebody pointed me to the, the direction of uh, Chris Minastre, who was uh, 
very much interested in uh, in talking with me. And um, eventually, after a period of waiting, I was uh, was initiated by Chris Minostri. At the time, she was uh, very much associated with um, uh, with uh, Cheek Cicero. You mentioned that name. And uh, um, they still are very, very close friends. Uh, but uh, they had uh, temples at different areas of the country. And this, this temple was located in Los Angeles. Um, over the years of um, working with... Um, um, the Golden Dawn had been very steadfastly, um, you know, committed to uh, to the work that was that was established by by Chris Minostri. I'm indebted to her for her her guidance and her her inspiration. And uh, yeah, you know, this as of today, I now uh, do uh, lead a temple. I, I will decline on giving the name of it i do keep that that uh, private but it, it is um something that i i do it's uh i have a temple and i'm uh, you know very very committed to it and it is a temple that is in the classical golden dawn tradition you certainly uh are aware that there are many splinter groups uh ever since the golden dawn was established and uh, they take on natures of their own uh, this this temple does operate in a very classical, traditional sense, as it was, uh, as it was, um, you know, uh, uh, supported by by uh, Israel Regardi, uh, you know, the the true uh, temple work uh, without without any um, other stuff added to it. Yeah, I want to point out, when you're talking about that, I want to point out something. Uh, there's a, some confusion about this. Uh, there are people, a lot of them, and you and, you and I both know, know some of them, who uh, can't differentiate between the Golden Dawn and and uh, Crowley and, and Aleister Crowley's uh, Philema, uh, and they believe that the Golden Dawn, as it is surviving, and it is surviving, quite well in, in uh, various, uh, I think there's probably a Golden Dawn temple in every major city in the United States at this point. Uh, and, uh, um, but, the, but the Golden Dawn is not polemic. It does not follow Aleister Crowley's uh, uh, Book of the Law. And there are, however, some, some quasi-Golden Dawn groups that do, that do claim to be polemic. And, uh, and, but, the traditional Golden Dawn is not, and interestingly enough, both uh, uh, both Israel Regardi and uh, who is the you know the progenitor of the Golden Dawn of this country, and Grady McMurtry, who was the progenitor of Crowley's OTO in this country, both of them were good friends, and both of them insisted that the two systems not be mixed. They both insisted on that. And and uh, so these people who who uh, claim that they have a Thelemic Golden Dawn, and I ran into some of them down in Texas, uh, and I, I hate to say it, but those they, they that is not the Golden Dawn. The Golden Dawn and the OTO are completely separate, and uh, you know, uh, so we, we want to make that uh, make that uh, that quite clear. Um, I, I would agree now, with you on that, and I, I suppose that the uh, their rationale for for calling it Thelemic 
Golden Dawn work is perhaps because some of the rituals of the Golden Dawn were, were borrowed for the purpose of another uh, another situation, uh, and, and I suppose that is the uh, the justification. However, I, I really don't see it that way. I see the Golden Dawn. I might go to the Golden Dawn and any kind of Rosicrucianism as distinct from uh, from Thelema. If Thelema is a uh, an expression of the individual will, um, I can appreciate that to some extent. However, as you know, I'm a Freemason, and and the individual will is is very important. But so is the will of every living thing on Earth. And and uh, there is a, a moral obligation, uh, in my view, to look at all humanity as as a collection of individuals with their individual wills, and we have a relationship with each other. We are children under a universal father, uh, the brotherhood of man and the fatherhood of God. And if we don't embrace that concept, then we would be looking only at ourselves. We have an obligation to humanity. It's difficult because the world has a lot of depravity and and it's difficult to look out there and see all humanity as somebody that we must love and and nurture and and heal and improve. There are some serious wrongs out there, but notwithstanding, it is our obligation because we are all brothers. Every man, woman, child is a brother under one fatherhood of God. So the best we can do at least is to set an example of ourselves for the benefit of everyone else, each one of whom each each of which each of whom has a will and an identity of his own and that is part of the of the human family. That's very, very well said and I I I, uh, I concur with that completely. Uh although uh you know in the Hermetic tradition of course uh we are uh uh we have a certain elitism in the sense that in the hermetic tradition we 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 believe that that uh that you might say many are called but few are chosen and and uh, it's it's the hermetic tradition is is composed well, of well, people well, well, who, well, yes, <laughs> absolutely yeah, many are called yeah, that, but few are chosen but the that, opportunity that, that, is yeah. still there for anyone who wishes to seek for the light and Absolutely. Maybe maybe the best we can do is is uh, hope by our own actions and, and the way we conduct ourselves. Maybe uh, shed a little light on on other parts of humanity that presently are living in darkness. And that is yeah that again is very well said. Uh, uh, I want to mention uh, your uh, uh, your role as Master Philos and Beyond Lemuria. Uh, and and let's uh, talk a little bit about that. We uh, 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 back in two well, it was actually we about two years in the making. Back in 2004, uh, I had uh, uh, I became uh, aware of of, uh, of the opportunity uh, to to actually uh, to actually make a film. And uh, and we thought uh, uh, that we could do some sort of a magical film and get some of our philosophy and uh, across in a magical vehicle. And, uh, and so I I, uh, 
I wrote up a, a, an outline for this, and and uh, and uh, we got some, you know, some uh, support and interest developed in it, and and we made a film uh, which we called Beyond Lemuria, which. Uh, uh, was you know, pretty much uh, we 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 tried to take advantage of of uh, uh, California resources in this respect, especially Mount Shasta, which has a mystical history behind it. And we thought, uh, well, that's right here in California, and and uh, so uh, let's uh, let's do something in relation to that. And uh, so we began to because. Uh, uh, Mount Shasta had a reputation for for uh, being the home of of the survivors of ancient Atlantis and Lemuria, these lost continents. So we began to do some research on that and, and came up with a with a uh, story which was based uh, uh, partly on uh, a channeled work. Uh, by uh, um, Frederick Spencer Oliver was 18 years of age up there uh, working his father's mining claim uh, up on uh, Mount Shasta and and contacted according to him by a by a uh, an ancient Atlantean adept uh, who called himself Pylos uh, and uh, Pylos. Uh, told his story to young uh, Frederick Spencer Oliver, who proceeded to become his his uh, the scribe for this for this story, and this became quite popular back right right in the turn of the century, around 1900, uh, and uh, it started off the whole mystical Mount Mount Shasta phenomenon, and. Uh, for the dark for the dark side of this story, because we wanted to do a, a kind of a medieval uh, morality play, we had the uh, we had uh, Philos and his uh, and his uh, brotherhood seeking the light going up the going up the mountain, and their their dark counterparts, the same people, uh, going down into these these caverns under the mountain, and. And so the evil uh, uh, creatures that they were uh, contacting were uh, derived from uh, Richard Shaver's uh, fantasies uh, that were presented as supposedly true stories and amazing stories back in 1947. And uh, that, too, was supposed to be a sort of a channeled work. So uh, we had a contrast between uh, good and evil here, and... In this case, you played uh, the role of Master Philos uh, on the good side with the with the with the uh, with the, the Lithuanian uh, Brotherhood uh, seeking the light, and you also on the dark side you played the villain, uh, Magister Abaddon, uh, the head of the Draconians who were going down into the caves. And you want to tell us a little bit about that uh, about your role in in, in that. Well, it was a, first of all, it was a very exciting time. Uh, you know, it, we all luckabraded around the clock, hours and hours on end. It, some of it was filmed uh, in Southern California, but obviously the most beautiful parts were were there up at uh, Mount Shasta. I believe we spent about a week there, uh, both up at Mount Shasta and down in the caverns uh, nearby below, uh, which I think was called Pluto's Cave. 
and uh, some of the most significant work um, representing the uh, the uh, people associated with Master Philos did their work on the mountain, on the mountainside, a beautiful setting uh, where some of the most um, uh, um, elevated uh, expressions were heard, manifested in uh, in uh, Jesus and and uh, several other um, um, figures from uh, religious history of representing a multiplicity of faiths. And, of course, uh, the most uh, depraved actions were, were down down in the uh, cave um, with the followers of, um, of, of Abaddon. And uh, this was, of course, an opportunity for me to... Um, you know, um, express myself in contrary ways, you know, as, as um, Philos, uh, speaking in very benevolent terms, and then the malevolent uh, expressions were heard down in the cave. I, I felt uh, very strange, to tell you the truth, because I, um, you know, I'm not accustomed to um, playing the part of uh, of evil, so to speak, and certainly um, the way the film portrays it, it, it was very much an evil thing. Uh, I even well, recall having... I recall having to hold a pistol to somebody's head that was part of the script, and and I felt so odd doing that. I, I, I can't even describe the, uh, the emotions I felt at the time. Uh, well, and, your, 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 your emotions, your emotions at the time were were mirrored by by Emily, who who was the the the, the girl who uh, who uh, you you were pointing the pistol at, and uh, and uh, we kept, you know, it's a very very realistic looking prop. It it was an old uh, an old, an old uh, uh, Bolo Mauser, uh, which that's uh, this. A wild east pen shooter, you know. This this is the uh, the favorite weapon of of Fu Manchu and and all the eastern villains and 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 even Winston Churchill with the Battle of Omdurman. But it it's a it's a strange looking thing. Uh, they even modified it, made it and used it as a ray gun in Star Wars. But but it uh, it's an evil looking piece and and. Yet the one we used was entirely solid. It was just nothing but solid zinc, and it, and we 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 had a long and hard time convincing Emily, because she'd heard all these horror stories about people getting, uh, you know, getting shot on in in in, in films or prop guns, and and uh, were supposed to be not loaded and all that. So we we you know, really had a hard time convincing her. Tell come on now, this is just a piece of, this is just a solid piece of metal. Don't worry about it. And uh, uh, and so the mean so if you you if you felt strange, imagine how strange she felt because she she just she really did. But you did a wonderful well, job. I felt like uh, something was in my hand that didn't belong there. I felt like my hand was going to rot. <laughs> yeah, the uh, uh, that uh, that that scene though was very effective in the uh, in the in the film and and. and uh, Abaddon, you playing, you know, playing uh, Abaddon, especially when you uh, talked about the Draconians, uh, how they still live in the roots of our brains, you know, and 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 all what was really, uh, really very very effective. So, 
So um, we um, we. Uh, but there again, in in the OTA, we we uh, we try in our magic to master the the dark side, uh, to master our dark side, and make it work for us. And in this case, Beyond Lemuria was almost a, in that sense, almost a magical operation, the way we were doing it. Um, you know, well, uh, all these uh, all these entities, uh, what we call evil and good, they're all they're all really children of God. There's nothing beneath this throne that is not. Uh, ordained by God, and uh, oh. they play important roles in our lives. You know. Well, that's that's certainly true, and and of course, as we have uh, as we have discovered in the course of our of our development, uh, Isis Isis and Osiris, and also uh, Baal and Astarte, uh, eventually eventually the dying the eternal goddess and the dying god. Eventually, through two, two or three thousand years, finally evolved into Jesus and Mary Magdalene, and uh, and Jesus was the last of the dying gods, and Mary Magdalene represented the last of the eternal goddesses, and so uh, we've come full circle in this respect, and and I think uh, that that of course is uh, part of the Holy Grail mystery that. That uh, that uh, we we in our tradition that we uh, that we uh, we actually reify that, and that that has a lot to do with the Rosicrucian tradition. Uh, and it know, speaks I, to I, me because I you know I am born a Christian and and uh, and and have a Christian faith uh, even to this day. And um, you know the uh, some of the ideas that the Church of the Hermetic Science expresses it speaks to me, and even in terms of my own Christian ethic and Christian uh, belief, it it does speak to me. And that's well, why of I course, honor the golden, it so much. Yeah. the Golden Dawn uh, venerates uh, uh, Osiris uh, as a, as a form of Christ, and, and as you know uh, that uh, we we end uh, every uh golden dawn uh, uh meeting with that with that uh, beautiful Osirian communion elemental communion uh which we also have a version of that in the o t a and uh, uh and osiris of course uh is as you know is an early form of Christ. It's, a, it's it's a resurrection it's a seed and flower of return expressed uh yeah. in, in the Osiris lection and, and of course in the in the Christian and in the Christian um uh, system yeah. of belief. Yeah. Now now in so, in the in the real world or the mundane world you are a professional librarian and and uh you're also uh going over into the Masonic world, you're the founder and the maintainer of the John uh, the John Cooper uh, Library at uh, at Poche Lodge in Culver City. You want to talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, well, I, I wouldn't call my profession a librarian. I uh, certainly spent many years in in library settings. My 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 education really is in music. Uh, I studied uh, music at SC, and uh, privately I've studied pipe organ and p- piano and flute and oboe and bassoon and and composition, uh, so I, I like to compose music as well. Um, but uh, yes, I spent many years in, in libraries, and, and consequently, uh, the uh, collection 
of the, the library collection within the Masonic Hall has been entrusted to me. In fact, it's been going on for many years, uh, even before we had shelves installed at the uh, at the Masonic Library. Uh, I was given permission to collect books and place them in storage somewhere in the building, and that went on, I think, for about ten to fifteen years. And and consequently, uh, we had a a large collection to start with uh, once we once we had installed shelves. And presently, we have about 5,000 uh, volumes. Uh, uh, not all of them are cataloged yet. That's, a, that's just something that's progressing. But we do have a, uh, a thorough catalog system uh, with complete uh, bibliographic uh, entries, uh, details for every, every entry, and uh, a database that can use search terms and tracings and so forth. That, um, find uh, books on any subject you want. Are you going to have a, you know, have a, have a Are you going to have a library loan system worked out for other? Yeah, uh, we actually already do. Projects? We do. Yes, we're assigning uh, card numbers, and and people can borrow books from our library, and and uh, and uh, uh, enhance their uh, their knowledge and their uh, and their their education with these important tools. Yeah, well, that's that's uh, that's excellent, uh, and uh, uh, you know, of course, I've seen the I've seen the the actual facility, and it is uh, it is very impressive. It's reputable. I mean, lodges uh, all over Southern California are looking to us as sort of the uh, the model to follow. I've been asked uh, by two or three lodges to come out and and uh, catalog their their books that they're beginning to collect, and to set up some sort of system. Uh, that can be very, rather involved, but uh, the point I'm making is that we have the, the model here that others are seeking to follow. Well, yeah, and that, and that, that, that works. And in the Impulse Collection, uh, well, every subject you can imagine is represented here. A large concentration on on um, uh, philosophy and uh, and um, comparative religion. Uh, obviously, a lot of books on. Freemasonry itself, and uh, and metaphysics—it's uh, all here in abundance. And, uh, and even even a couple of mine, I think. Uh, oh, and, absolutely! Uh, I, I think every every book you've ever written is <laughs> has been uh, entered into our collection, and they and, go out, they uh, circulate a lot. <laughs> I know, yeah. Uh, actually, and, and, and I'm, I'm really uh, honored by that. But uh, uh, the uh, uh, so this is going to be a resource that's available to all the Masons in California, and also available to out-of-state out-of-state Masons. Yes, potentially that can happen. I, I haven't actually had somebody out of state uh, borrow a book yet, but it is available. It, it can be done. Yep. Somebody wants, well, wants somebody uh, wants to fly in. We'll <laughs> we can even mail them a book in some cases. Yeah, Worship uh, 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 America. I, I yeah, yeah, yeah. At least uh, at least I get to use that title once anyway. Uh, 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 I want to thank you so much for for uh, for giving this this wonderful look into your uh, into your. Uh, your background and 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 your your uh, accomplishments, your talent, and everything, because 
I consider you uh, one of the one of the great assets uh, of our church, and and one of the and one of the uh, uh, and and you are you are truly a, a modern master, and and uh, I want to thank you so much for coming on board. Uh, next week, uh, I'm going to be. Uh, uh, doing a, in, in a sense, we're going to be doing the same thing with me because uh, Dr. Claire uh, Fitzpatrick back uh, back in New York just interviewed me and in very much the same way that we've we did, that we've uh, done with uh, Merrick tonight, and so we're gonna we're gonna run that one uh, her podcast uh, on. Uh, on her interviewing me next week on the Hermetic Hour, and so uh, uh, you can all, uh, um, you know, if you if, if there's anything about me you don't think you know yet, uh, be sure and tune in. And meanwhile, thanks again, Mary. Well, I, I realize you're you're an eccentric folk, uh, as I am too. Uh, but what may not be known um, by all of your associates is that. Um, you are a very kind, uh, benevolent person. You're a true benefactor and philanthropist. And uh, sometimes oh, in, in these circles, so that doesn't always come out, but that's what you are. That's really why right. you're in my life, yeah. because I, I really oh. respect that very much. Thank you so much, I, 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 America. I, I, I need that right now, because right now I'm, uh, right now I'm thinking about that that cartoon we used to have hanging up and at, at Smoke Bomb Hill with uh, the, this, this this evil-looking barbarian, hair-to-hairy-chested guy with uh, with a couple of cartridge belts and a, and a machine gun over his shoulder. And he's saying, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because I'm the meanest SOB in the valley. <laughs> and right now, right now, I appreciate your comment because right now I'm, I'm uh, I think there are a few people with, that 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 are that are thinking that I'm the meanest SOB in the valley. <laughs> well, so I, I know I know otherwise, and and you're you're you're. Uh... Uh, your benefaction is is um, something that's usually very quiet, and and that's just why that's why I wanted to make a point of it. It's it's a it's a really a major part of your life, even though even though you keep it low profile. Uh, you're truly a truly a mentor for many and a benefactor. Well, thank you so much. And on that note, uh, we're going to sign off, and uh, we'll see you folks next week. And meanwhile, good magic. Thank you. Good night.